Good morning. Let's, uh, let's pray as you make your way in. Father, we're grateful for your grace to us. Your good Father who gives good gifts. You're slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. You forgive iniquity, transgression, and sin. You show steadfast love and faithfulness to a thousand generations. And so we're grateful for an opportunity this morning to come together and uh, to... Uh, consider your word and how to be better students of your word. And so I pray that you would uh, help us. We confess that we are dependent uh, on you, uh, even as uh, Hebrews says that uh, for us to, uh, to gain insight into Scripture is something that we can only do if you permit us. And so we pray for your sovereign grace this morning. We ask these things with hope and expectation in Christ's name. Amen. Well, welcome to Theological Equipping Class. All semester, we're talking about what we're calling applied theology. Sometimes it's also called practical theology. In effect, this is Discipleship 101. That's what we're doing uh, all semester. We're talking about discipleship. So far, we've talked about prayer. We've talked about reading and memorizing Scripture. We've talked about fasting. And we've talked about resting. All of those are spiritual disciplines to aid in your discipleship. Bear in mind, a couple of weeks ago, we used the image uh, of uh, two different ways that you can think about spiritual disciplines. When you think of the word discipline, what is it that you think about? So the first is that you can think of it kind of like a summons to a jury duty or being served notice that you're being sued. So you can think of spiritual disciplines as these commands. Uh, You have to show up at a particular time in a particular place or else there will be Consequences, And so that's how some people think of spiritual disciplines. And that leads to frustration, that leads to fatigue, that leads to legalism. So the other way, and the way that I would encourage you to think of disciplines, is to think of them like you win this all-expense paid trip to spend the weekend with the Queen of England or with Paul McCartney or whoever it is that would be on your kind of upper echelon of people that you would like to meet. It's this invitation to joy. That's how you should think of spiritual disciplines, as these invitations for your flourishing, for your joy, for your hope, and so forth. And so today we want to talk about another spiritual discipline. It's related to reading and memorizing Scripture, but it's a a bit distinct, and that is studying Scripture. So we talked about this a couple of weeks ago when we talked about reading and memorizing Scripture. Uh, There are different approaches, different ways to relate to Scripture. You can pray Scripture, you can read Scripture, you can uh, memorize Scripture, you can study Scripture. All of these things are different um, uh, disciplines as it relates to uh, engaging Scripture. And so we talked about the difference between reading versus studying. The goal of reading is to (laughs) expose yourself to more of the text. So we might think of reading as being this horizontal sort of thing. Whereas the goal of studying is to dig into a particular text. It's much more uh, vertical, all right? The goal being to dig down deeply into much smaller chunks, much smaller sections of the text of Scripture. So reading is kind of like jogging through a park, whereas uh, studying is like a slow walk interspersed with breaks to stop and smell the roses. So reading is faster, uh, studying is much slower, You need to have some sort of discipline whereby you're doing both uh, somewhat uh, regularly. So why should you study Scripture? Well, when we talk about why you should study Scripture, a lot of the same reasons that we talked about why you should read Scripture would overlap there. Remember, the Bible is going to command you to delight in it. The Bible says you should delight in the Bible, that you should understand it, you should obey it, that you should treasure it, that you should meditate on it, etc., which implies that you have to read it, you have to memorize it, you have to study it, and so forth. And so the goal, though, isn't to master Scripture. The goal isn't to have some sort of graduate degree in Scripture or something like that. The goal isn't to master Scripture, but rather to be mastered by Scripture. The goal, whether reading or memorizing or studying, the goal is to be transformed by Scripture. Look at 2 Corinthians 3.18. I think it's in your notes. I hope so. It says, and we all with unveiled face beholding the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. That's the goal. The goal of studying, the goal of reading, the goal of engaging Scripture in any sense is to behold the glory of God in His Word 
and to be progressively transformed into the image of Christ as we do. As the, uh, the theologian scholar G.K. Beale says, we become like what we worship. He also says we resemble what we revere. So those who look to Christ over time begin to look like Christ. Those who look to Christ begin to look like Christ. So we read Scripture in order to become imitators of Christ, which is what discipleship is all about. So beyond that sort of overarching goal or purpose, what are some reasons that we should study Scripture? Well, first, because God commands that we diligently ponder His Word. 2 Timothy 2.7, think over what I say, for the Lord will give you understanding in everything. Notice, that's a command. You are commanded, I am commanded, we are commanded to think over the Word of God. And if you can neglect that, that's called sin. That's called disobedience. Does that mean that you necessarily have to have a daily quiet time? No. Though I'd recommend it, it doesn't mean that you, it doesn't mean that you necessarily have to have what we would think of as a kind of daily quiet time sort of thing. But it does mean that you have to have some means in your life of submitting to this command to think over the things that are written there in the text. So that's the first reason. God commands that you do something like studying, that you diligently ponder his word. Secondly, by knowing and treasuring scripture, we're enabled to resist and mortify sin. Look at Psalm 119, 9 through 11. How can a young man keep his way pure? By guarding it according to your word. With my whole heart I seek you. Let me not wander from your commandments. I have stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. As uh, the great Puritan John Bunyan wrote, this book, speaking of the Bible, will keep you from sin, or sin will keep you from this book. Bear in mind the example of Jesus in, the, in his temptations. How does he resist temptation? He resists temptations by knowing and quoting Scripture, by knowing the promises of God and knowing the warnings of God, the warnings of Scripture, and allowing those to take root in his heart. So that's the second reason. The third reason is that God promises wisdom to those who seek it diligently. Proverbs 2, my son, if you receive my words and treasure up my commandments with you, making your ear attentive to wisdom and inclining your heart to understanding, yes, if you call out for, it, uh, call out for insight and raise your voice for understanding, if you seek it like silver and search for it as for hidden treasures, then you will understand the fear of the Lord and find the knowledge of God. So reading is kind of like walking through a field and you potentially stumble upon a jewel of wisdom. Studying is more like buying a shovel and you head into a mine to dig for it. That's what studying is going to be. And so God commands you to seek it, to seek it, to treasure it, to love it, to delight in it, to desire it. Fourth, God commands you to pursue maturity. And by that, in the context of the passage I'm going to quote, he means not only spiritual maturity in general, but theological maturity in particular. Hebrews 5, 11 through 6, 3. About this we have much to say, and it's hard to explain since you have become dull of hearing. That's an indictment, by the way. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk, not solid food. For everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness since he is a child. But solid food is for the mature, for those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. Therefore, let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity, not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God and of instruction about washings, the laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead, and eternal judgment. And this we will do if God permits. There's absolutely nothing to be ashamed about if you're still drinking spiritual milk. But there is something wrong if you don't have some sort of desire to eventually move from solid milk to solid, I'm sorry, from solid milk, that's weird, chunky, old, to move from milk to solid food, right? Think of a 10-year-old that's still breastfeeding, right? There's something that's wrong with that image. Fifth, so that we might be equipped for every good work. 2 Timothy 3, all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. 
In order for Scripture to do this work, in order for Scripture to be profitable in this sense, it must be understood, right? A scalpel in my hand isn't useful for all that much, but in the hands of a surgeon, it's profitable. The same is true of Scripture. There's even a proverb uh, in the book of Proverbs. There's a proverb that says, a proverb in the mouth of a fool is like a paralyzed man's legs, which are useless, Right? So in order for you to actually correct, for you to be equipped, for you to do all of these things that 2 Timothy says Scripture is profitable for, you have to understand it. In order to understand it, you have to study it. And then lastly, this is not the last reason. This is not an exhaustive, comprehensive list, but just uh, uh, last on my list. is because Scripture is inexhaustible. Think about this. This is, uh, this is fascinating. We, we have now had the Bible in its completed form for almost 2,000 years. Over that time, it's been pondered by some of the greatest minds in human history, whether believers or unbelievers. Right? You have guys like Augustine, Aquinas, Luther, Calvin, Edwards, Karl Browers, right? all the great ones. For millennia, it's been studied, it's been pondered, it's been dissected, And yet every single year, hundreds if not thousands of evangelical scholars get graduate degrees or write papers where they tackle topics that have never before been considered. The Bible is simple enough that it can lead a five-year-old to faith, and yet it's complex enough to perplex all of the learned scholars of the world. I got saved at the age of 23. I was attending a men's Bible study. The only reason I wanted to attend was because I was invited to play flag football, and that was the condition. You can only play flag football if you come to the men's Bible study beforehand. So I went. We studied James 4. I had no idea what was happening in that particular passage, but I thought in my arrogance, I was naive. I thought if I just read the whole Bible, then I'll know the whole thing. Again, that's naive. That's arrogant. That was 21 years ago. I've probably read the Bible since then 20-something times, gotten a master's degree of theology, done 16 years of vocational ministry, and yet there isn't a week that goes by as I'm prepping for a sermon or I'm listening to someone else teach uh, or something like that that I don't learn something new. It's kind of like in marriage, right? Probably you can all attest today's uh, Dave and Vicky's 52nd anniversary And yet they're still learning new things about each other. You can be married for decades and decades, and yet you're still learning something new about the other. For instance, last year, Casey and I went out to eat uh, for an anniversary celebration, and the waiter comes by at the end and offers us complimentary dessert for our anniversary. And I don't remember what the other dessert was, but one of the desserts was some banana thing. And so I said, I'll take the other. And Casey asked why, and I said, because I don't really care for bananas. And she was absolutely shocked, all right? I like banana nut muffins, but the texture of bananas themselves just kind of grossed me out. But anyway, we've been married for almost a decade, and she had no idea that I don't like bananas. If that's true of marriage, then it's even more true of God's Word, which is infinitely glorious. There are treasures, there are insights in Scripture that you don't see today, that you will one day if you'll study. That should be exciting. That should be encouraging. Again, this is not me up here telling you, you have to study or else. This is me inviting you to flourish, inviting you to experience joy and vitality in life. So reading, studying Scripture should be our daily delight. We should be able to resonate with the psalmist in Psalm 119 who talks about treasuring and desiring and loving God's Word. Think for a second about how you feel when you're famished. Maybe it's been a really busy day and you had to skip breakfast and you had to skip lunch. And you finally get a chance to eat. That should be like how we feel when we engage Scripture. Feasting on the Word should be like sitting down to a filet for dinner after you've had to skip lunch. By the way, Scripture itself suggests that analogy, right? What what does God tell Israel in the wilderness about why he gave them manna. He said he tested them and gave them manna so that they might learn what? That man doesn't live on bread alone, but by what? Every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. 
So if that's the case, if all of these things are true, why is it that we constantly find ourselves year after year making resolutions to read or study only to find ourselves consistently falling short? Here are a few reasons why we might struggle in uh, the discipline of studying Scripture. Number one is because we've lost the taste. <clears throat> Here's what I mean. Last week we talked about fasting. I've never done anything <laughs> really extensive. I've never done more than a three-day fast. But I have friends who've done a longer fast. And they, they, they say that eventually you get to a point in your fasting where you actually don't even feel hungry anymore. And I think that's how a lot of us are when it comes to studying Scripture. We've never really done it. We've never really studied it. Or it's been so long since we've do, done so, so we don't, even, we don't even realize what we're missing. Like the person who's fasted doesn't even realize that they're hungry anymore. We've lost our appetite. We don't really resonate with passages like Psalm 111, verse 2. Great are the works of the Lord, studied by all who delight in them. And here's the deal. If you want to grow, if you really want to grow in this area, I think there needs to be repentance. And repentance begins with being honest with yourself to yourself. I think if many of us were actually honest, we would be able to admit that we don't delight in Scripture. <clears throat> yeah, we believe intellectually. We believe that it's inspired, it's inerrant, it's authoritative, it's sufficient, and so forth. We know the right things. But that knowledge hasn't really transformed our hearts. We don't treasure it. We don't long for it. We don't yearn for it. When push comes to shove, and push comes to shove every single day for us, we'd rather sleep later, or we'd rather work more, or we'd rather watch Netflix or whatever. When it comes down to it, I think the biggest challenge to reading or studying Scripture is actually our own hearts. It's not our calendar. It's not our lives. It's our hearts. Deep down, we just don't want to. Or, let me rephrase it, there are other things we want to do more than we want to. It just gets deprioritized because we fundamentally misunderstood the nature and purpose of Scripture. I think deep down a lot of us are pragmatic. We're affected by pragmatism. And so Scripture seems somewhat irrelevant. We have business meetings. We have dinner to make. We have errands to run. We have kids to shuffle to sports or whatever. And if that's the case, just admit it. There is freedom to be found in confessing that. That's where repentance and change begins. But that's the first reason we've lost the taste. Second, maybe you have doubts about Scripture's reliability, and that's the reason that you don't study. If that's the case, there are tons of resources for you to check out. We've talked about a lot of those before. We talked about apologetics for an entire semester. But if that is your struggle, there are really good resources out there. Shoot me an email. Shoot any of our elders uh, or staff members an email. If you have doubts about reliability, there are answers out there. Again, you just have to be honest enough to ask the questions. <clears throat> A third reason is because we just don't know how to study. If we're being honest, I think most of us don't really know how to read. I'm not saying you're illiterate, right? You can follow a story. You can read the newspaper. But for the most part, your average American doesn't know how to actually study, doesn't know how to weigh arguments, doesn't know how to think logically and critically. Think about how often you might read a news report or you might read a tweet and that tweet says something and it says that such and such means whatever and you think that's not at all what it actually says. I think this is an epidemic in our culture and in, 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 even in church culture. We're one of the most literate societies in all of human uh, history, yet we don't actually know how to read correctly and critically. So if this final challenge represents you, most of what we'll talk about today is intended to help you learn a method of study. We're going to talk about how to study the Bible in particular. But before we get to an actual method for studying Scripture, I want to define a couple of terms that uh, overlap with our topic those terms are hermeneutics and exegesis. <clears throat> Basically, both of these are what we're talking about, so I want you to know these terms. What is hermeneutics? Hermeneutics is the science and art of interpretation, not just biblical interpretation, but interpretation in, uh, in general. All right? It's from the, the Greek god Hermes, who was a messenger, and he gave messages 
And so hermeneutics is the science and art of interpreting. Studying is about interpreting correctly so that you might understand and obey. So hermeneutics is really the means of pursuing a correct interpretation. And that brings us to exegesis. Exegesis and the related term exegetical, literally it refers to a drawing out, a drawing out. Think of a person lowering a bucket into a well and drawing out the water that's below. That's exegesis. You're you're drawing out what is there. When applied to Scripture, exegesis is when we draw out the author's intended meaning. And that's opposed to a term called eisegesis. Eisegesis, which is when we insert our own thoughts into the text rather than drawing out what is actually there. Eisegesis would be like pouring a bunch of Mountain Dew into a bucket. You lower it into the well, and then you pull it back up, and you say, OMG, there's Mountain Dew down there. All right? So that's exegesis versus eisegesis. With that in mind, how can we be a faithful exegete? How can we do good hermeneutics? (coughs) Well, generally the best approach is what is called inductive Bible study. And it can be simply thought of as four steps. Reading, observation, interpretation, and application. Or you can change the last one from application to doing. So it would be reading, observing, interpreting, and doing, which makes the acronym ROID, if that helps you, right? (laughs) Getting swole on Scripture. I'll talk about each of those steps shortly. But since this is intended to be highly practical, let's back up a bit <coughs> because I want to ask some preliminary questions. And here's the, the phrase that I want you to remember as we're doing this. It's not unique to me, but tools, not rules. Tools, not rules. I'll recommend things I think are helpful. Most people that I know that have uh, taught on this think are helpful. But you might find other ways that work just as well. These aren't unbending rules. They're just tools that I think would help. And I'm going to use the illustration of an evening dinner. So you sit down for dinner. What's the first thing you do? The first thing you do, if you're fancy, is you set the table, right? You need to make sure you have the plates and the silverware and the napkins and all of those kinds of things. Likewise, when it comes to studying. So how do you do that? How do you set the table when it comes to studying Scripture? You do that by answering a few questions. Number one, when will you study? We talked about this when we talked about Reading, you have to actually have a plan. The vast majority of us don't have the discipline to be able to read or to be able to study without actually having some sort of plan. You can't wait for the opportunity. You have to create it. You have to carve out time. You have to get up early. You have to stay up late. If that doesn't work, you have to skip lunch. That way you can incorporate studying and fasting, right? One of the big things to understand is that in many of these, is that you need to know yourself. In many of these suggestions, you need to actually know yourself. right? If your mind is mush at night, don't read then. Be honest with yourself. If you have the discipline to be able to actually read the Bible regularly, frequently, to study the Bible regularly, frequently, without some sort of reading plan, that's great. Be honest with yourself. If that's not you, that's fine. You need to have a plan. Number two, where will you study? Do you have a favorite place, alone, in a busy coffee shop, at home, at a table, in a reading chair with your feet propped up? This step is actually more important than you think. For instance, do you have the ability, again, know yourself, do you have the ability to tune other people out? If, that, if not, that's going to affect when and where you study. Now, if your goal is just to kind of check off a list, I studied Scripture today, I read Scripture today, then you might say, I'm going to do it wherever. And if you're a little distracted, that's okay. But if your goal isn't really to check off a list, but to actually engage the text, I think that changes things. And I think you need to get to a place where you can be undistracted. That should be the goal. The goal to be uh, to to find some place where you're undisturbed. But if you think, I don't really ever have time to myself. A, I think that's probably not true. I think you probably could stay up later. You could get up early. But let's imagine it is true. Let's imagine that you actually are someone and you don't have time to yourself. I think the example of Susanna Wesley is helpful. She was the the mother of John and Charles Wesley, the founders of Methodism. She had 19 kids. Fit right in with Parkway, right? So I would imagine, now a few of them uh, died um, in infancy, but she still had a you know, 
a whole football team worth of kids. So getting alone time, I would imagine, was pretty hard. So what was her solution? Well, she would sit in a particular chair. She would pull her apron over her head, and she would let the kids know when mom has the apron over her head, she was not to be disturbed except in an emergency. And that's how she got time for prayer. I'm not saying you need to do that, but you need to do something And maybe that gets the creative juices flowing for you to think through what are some options for you. I don't think that you can just simply make the the excuse, I don't have time. You have to create it. And I think if you actually desire this, if you want this, you will create the time. Third, you need to ask the question, what will you study? First, what translation? When you study, we've talked about translations before. We have an entire theological equipping class uh, on that. Some try to be more word for word. Some tend to be more uh, paraphrastic. Some try to balance those approaches. When it comes to reading, I think you can be much more flexible. But when it comes to studying, I think you should choose something that's a little bit more word for word, a little bit more literal. I would recommend the ESV or the NASB or something like that. But again, we had a entire theological equipping on that uh, years back. You can go check out. Second, what passage will, will you read? Maybe you want to study the entire book of Romans a little bit at a time, or you want to study the Sermon on the Mount, or you want to study a particular topic like prayer or predestination throughout Scripture. Choose a topic or text before uh, sitting down. Excuse me. And then fourth, do you have everything you will need? For example, if it's the morning, do you have a cup of coffee? which is the official warm beverage of Christianity. If it's the evening, do you have a glass of wine, the official unwarm beverage? Next, do you have a pen? Do you have a, a Bible highlighter? They, they make highlighters that are specifically for uh, Bibles, given how thin the pages are. If you use a regular highlighter, it's just going to bleed through. Next, do you have a journal, all right, to each their own. I'm not a big journaler. I probably should be, but I'm not. That might be something that's helpful for you. And then the last, I'd encourage you to have some sort of extra notebook or piece of paper sitting nearby in case something random, unrelated to the text, just pops into your head. This happens almost all of the time, especially as you're just kind of learning the discipline, all right? You'll think, oh, that report is due today, or I got to send that email, or don't forget to pick up the kids from practice or whatever it might be. If you can resist the temptation To get distracted by your phone, you could pick up your phone, enter it into your task list or whatever it might be, but most people get too distracted. That's not just your personality, by the way. This is spiritual warfare. Hudson Taylor, a great missionary, said, Satan will always find something to do when you ought to be occupied about that, that being spiritual things, if it's only arranging a window blind. All right? This is why I wouldn't recommend reading the Bible on your phone or on your iPad either unless you actually possess the discipline, you're honest with yourself, to refrain from those common distractions of checking email or Twitter or a news app, whatever it might be. So you set the table, you've made the meal, now you sit down, and what's next? Well, you probably generally start with prayer. What do you pray? This is what I pray every morning before I read. My bulk of my prayer is after reading scriptures that I know what to pray because I'm influenced by the scripture. This is my preparatory prayer. I-O-U-S. I-O-U-S. Incline me entirely to your word. Open my eyes and help me see the beauty and wonders of Christ and the glories of the gospel. Unite my heart to fear you for my desires are ever divided by the things of this world. But satisfy me with your steadfast love which you have shown me in Christ. All of those are from various passages in the book of Psalms. So now you've prayed, and it's time to feast. Remember, there are four steps according to the Royd method, reading, observing, interpreting, and doing. First thing is you have to read. I recommend reading the text a couple of times just to get an idea of the context, the flow, what's kind of going on in the passage. And as you read, things probably begin to pop off the page. And as they do, I would encourage you to highlight them or to underline them. I've heard guys say before that they don't want to write in the Bible because they don't want to confuse their words with God's. It's a good point. Let me give you a method for that. The next time you come back to the page and you see something written on it, if what you read is typewritten, that's God's. If it's your handwriting, that's yours. Problem solved, right? 
Crisis averted. So read it, and then you reread it in this step. The more familiar you are with it, the easier the rest of the process will be. The same way that the more that you know your friends, the more that you're around your spouse, whatever it might be, the easier it is to kind of understand what they're saying. You, you can actually kind of predict what they're thinking. <clears throat> That's true of the scriptures as well. The more familiar you are with it, it gets easier over time. Next observation, what does the text actually say? What do I actually see? Imagine that you go on a, a first date. How do you get to know someone? Well, you ask good questions, right? The same is true of Scripture. In many ways, learning to study the Bible is really just the art of learning to ask the right questions. So in this step of just observing, you're peppering the text with questions. Who, what, when, where. You're asking the question, what does the text actually say? And this is probably the most important step of the process. In fact, one scholar defined hermeneutics as seeing what is there. And we observe things all the time. We are naturally observant people, right? I observe as I'm, uh, as I'm uh, uh, driving that the light is red or it's yellow or it's green. I notice that it's cold in this room or it's warm or there's still snow outside or whatever it might be. We're familiar with the observation. We're observing things all the time. And yet most of us, I think, aren't actually good at observation. Like uh, Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, the author of Sherlock Holmes, said, the world is full of obvious things which nobody by any chance ever observes. So in, my, uh, in seminary, my Bible Exposition 101 class was taught by a guy named Howard Hendricks. He was a bit of a legend in Bible study method. And to stress the importance of observation, our first homework assignment was to go home and read Acts 1.8. Acts 1.8 says, But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. So we were to read that and then to make 25 observations. Just observations, no interpretation. If you interpreted, you lost points. 25 observations. So everyone goes home begin to observe the text. We come back the next day. Some of my classmates are bragging that they had found 75 or 100 observations. So we turn them in. Dr. Hendricks says, good job. Now go and do it again. Come back tomorrow with another 25. What if you turn in 100 already? Too bad, another 25 tomorrow. So that night took longer, but we do it again. Come back, a handful of overachievers, and again, he said, I found an extra 50 or 75. So we turned it in, and Hendricks says, that's great. 25 more for tomorrow. Guess how many turned in more than 25 the next day? <laughs> None. All those overachievers learned their lesson, right? Never pays to do more than you're asked. <laughs> By the end, it kind of felt like you're trying to, 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 to wring water from a rock. But even after 75 observations, we hadn't really exhausted what was there. In fact, I think Hendricks said that uh, he was up to like 400-something after decades of assigning that task. He said almost every class, there's some new observation that someone comes up with that he had never seen before. So again, what is observation? It's simply seeing what is actually there. For example, in Acts 1.8, how many verbs are there? There's actually three. Receive, has come, and will be. All right? How does this relate to the previous verse? Well, you look and say, what's the first word there? But. So there's somehow sort of contrast that's uh, uh, <coughs> evidenced by the word but there, the conjunction there. How many locations? Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, end of the earth. There's four. What's the relationship between those Locations. This is where it might be helpful to have an atlas or something like that. That's why Bibles have these sorts of things in the back. Well, they're spreading out. There's an epicenter, and they're spreading out like ripples of an earthquake. Who is speaking in the text? You'd have to read the context to see, but Jesus is speaking. When is he speaking? Again, if you read the context, it's after his resurrection and immediately before his ascension. To whom is he speaking? Again, in the context, you could look. You might want to also know, is, that, is the, the you there, is that singular or is it plural? To know for sure, you'd have to consult a Greek text. Greek pronouns uh, have 
the, uh, the singularity or plurality, but English doesn't say. And the answer is his disciples. That's who he's speaking to. Where is this dialogue or monologue taking place? What is a witness? Where else is that word used? Is this a command? Is this a question? Is this a statement of fact? Are there any conditions mentioned? These are the kind of things that you will observe. And the more time you spend in this step, the less time you'll have to spend elsewhere. It seems elementary. It might make you feel dumb to just be listing out observations. But that's what's going to be most helpful. And if you really want to grow in your skill and the discipline of observation, I would encourage you to apply that skill outside of the bounds of Scripture. To close your eyes, to try to imagine what's happening around you. For instance, how many people are around you? What color are the walls? What time is it? What color shirt am I wearing? We've been trained by years, uh, over years, to kind of tune out what seems unimportant, right? You can't take in all of the data that's around you on a daily basis. And so your, your mind has learned to adapt by just tuning out things that it thinks to be unimportant. At the end of the day, it doesn't really matter what color, uh, color shirt I'm wearing. So you might not even notice that. But when it comes to Scripture, nothing is irrelevant. So the goal here is to observe everything, terms, propositions, sentence structure, literary form, atmosphere. For instance, it, it adds a new dimension to Philippians 4, rejoice in the Lord always when you observe the fact that it's written from a prison. And your goal in this step of observation isn't determine what is, to determine what is and is not significant. Everything is significant at this point. It's kind of like panning for gold. Your goal is just to bring up as much dirt as you possibly can. Later processes will separate the gold from the dirt. For now, you're just digging down into the stream and pulling up absolutely everything that you can. So here are the kind of things that you should look for. Are there any repeated words or ideas? Who is speaking or writing? To whom are they speaking or writing? Who are the main characters? Where is this taking place? What are the geographical markers? Again, your goal isn't to say whether that's relevant or not at this point, just if they're existent in the text. Are there any words that show chronology? Are there contrasts? Are there comparisons? Are there conditional statements? What's the logical progression in the author's arguments? Are there words that indicate atmosphere, mood, and emotion? Are there figures of speech? What are the section divisions? What don't you understand here? All of those kind of things I would list out. <clears throat> After you've done that, after you've observed the text sufficiently, you move on to interpretation, which is what does the text mean? Now, being a good student of the Bible isn't easy. In fact, there are a lot of challenges. Let me mention a few. Number one is speculation. This is where we get into a whole lot of trouble because we like to jump to the conclusions. We like to fill in the blanks. I think the greatest danger to both observation and interpretation and in application is probably speculation. Anyone a fan of the BBC, BBC show Sherlock? There's a, there's a scene where uh, Sherlock, Sherlock Holmes, modernized version, he first meets Dr. Watson, and he knows all of this stuff about him based on a little inspection. It's this really powerful scene where you see his powers of deduction, all right, just from a few little observations. Well, I saw a YouTube parody of this, where Sherlock says all the exact same things. They use almost the exact same speech from the original show. And yet in this YouTube parody, they're all completely wrong, right? He's making educated guesses, but all of them are just completely off. And that reminds me of the process of biblical interpretation. Your greatest enemy is speculation. Don't assume you know what the verse means, all right? Even if you've memorized it, you've heard a hundred verses, uh, sermons on it, Approach the, the text with a sense of awe and wonder and expectation. A second challenge is cultural distance. All right? Raise your hand if your uh, natural first language is Hebrew or Greek or Aramaic. Raise your hand if you're born in first century Israel. All right? None of us, right? That means that the text is literally foreign to us. There is this cultural divide that we're trying to bridge, but it's difficult. There is this geographical divide whereby most of us aren't familiar with the geography of Israel. By the way, if you want to be more familiar, just a little plug. I'm actually leading an Israel tour next year. Shoot me an email if you're interested in that. There's also a, ling a linguistic divide, right? We have faithful translations, but even the best translation misses something, idioms and so forth. There's a cultural divide. We don't understand customs and traditions. There's a chronological divide. 
people that would have been very familiar in the first century aren't familiar to us because of that time. A fourth challenge for interpretation is familiarity. This is a huge one. Many of us grew up in church, so we might come to the text with lenses, but those lenses might be incorrect. None of us approaches the text like a tabula rasa, like a blank slate. At times, that can be an advantage, but it can also hinder us if our assumptions are incorrect. And then lastly, lack, uh, lack of adequate resources. It's really easy to get resources on the Bible. It's hard to get the right resources on the Bible. All right? For example, if you just Google search something, right, 99.9% of what you find on studying or interpreting Scripture is really unhelpful. Right? We live in an age that believes in the democratization of information. We think that, uh, you know, that something is true because the majority of people hold it rather than that the, you know, the qualifications of the one who uh, holds it or something. So that's a challenge. So with all of these challenges, should you just give up on interpretation? Of course not. Said, uh, let me give you <clears throat> a few helpful hints for interpretation. Number one, ask good questions. Just like an in observation, interpretation, you have to bombard the, the text with questions. This time asking, why did he use that word? How is it related to this other? What does he mean? How is this connected in the context? So ask good questions. We see that even in Jesus. For instance, he's talking to the Pharisees about Psalm 110, and he asks, how can David call the Messiah Lord if the Messiah is David's son? That's a great question. That leads to the conclusion, the interpretation of that is that the Messiah must be something more than just a mere mortal man. Number two, work hard at it. 2 Timothy 2.15, do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. Interpretation and observation isn't easy. It requires diligent labor. You're not passively watching a TV show. You're approaching a holy, sovereign God through his word. So be like Luther, who said that he beat importunately upon Paul to figure out what is meant by the righteousness of God in Romans. Because he didn't give up, the Reformation was birthed. Or think of the biblical example of, of Jacob wrestling with God in the wilderness and saying, I'm not going to let go until the blessing is received. That's how you should approach the word. A third helpful hint is learn English. Some of you are like, done. Not so fast, all right? In seminary, my first reading assignment for my introduction to Greek class was to read a book on English grammar. Why is that? Because most English speakers don't really understand the finer complexities of the language. Like I said earlier, being literate doesn't mean that you can read well. Do you understand the actual role of conjunctions like and or but? What about adjectives or adverbs? What about the difference between a subject and an object of a verb? What about passive versus active verbs? What about prepositions? For instance, Ephesians 2.8, we were saved by grace through faith. That's quite distinct than if he were to write, we, we were saved by faith through grace. That's different. What about cause and effect relationships? Do we understand those? Consider John 10, 26, which says, you do not believe because you are not part of my flock. Flock. What is the cause and effect relationship that exists between those clauses? He doesn't say, you're not my sheep because you do not believe, which is actually theologically significant. The difference between those two readings is the difference between Calvinism and Arminianism. In addition to that, do you understand figures of speech like anthropomorphism or hyperbole or euphemism or idioms? English, Greek, and Hebrew, they're all different, and yet all languages share some commonality. So if you're going to study an English translation, you need to understand English conventions. Number four, read good theology. There is this interesting, what's called the hermeneutical spiral that occurs in interpretation. We interpret scripture through our theology, but at the same time, our theology comes through interpreting scripture. That becomes a huge spiral or a loop. No one approaches the, the text free of bias, and that's okay. The goal is actually not to be objective. You can't actually be objective when it comes to approaching Scripture. The question is whether or not your presuppositions and your assumptions are actually biblical 
or not. So if you want to be a, uh, if you want to learn how to be a better student of the Bible, read good theology books, listen to good sermons. All right. If you want to be good at soccer, watch Messi. If you want to be a better quarterback, study Tom Brady. Rest in peace. If you want to grow as a tennis player, watch Djokovic. If you want to be a better student of Scripture, then you need to learn from those who themselves are good students. And then lastly, uh, use good resources. I would always encourage you first to try to work it out on your own before consulting supplemental resources. But nevertheless, I think this is a good and helpful and necessary step. What counts as a good resource? Well, there's concordances to look up word usage. There's lexicons and dictionaries to help define words. There's commentaries. And there's also community. Right Here's the rule. If it's new, it ain't true. If you can't find someone, someone legitimate in church history, and preferably a lot of people in church history who hold your view, you should be really worried about that. If I were you, I would assume it's more likely that I'm wrong than that 2,000 years of church history is wrong. Assuming otherwise is really how you get cults. So rather than recommend a million resources, let me recommend a couple. First, if you want a good study Bible, I recommend the ESV study Bible. They have a bunch of different ones, the ESV Reformation study Bible, and, and there's, there's, I don't know, a handful. But the one I'm talking about is just the one that's called the ESV study Bible. That's it. No other adjectives or anything like that. Second, ask for commentaries. It really depends on the book of the Bible. Think of theologians like doctors, right? You have generalists and you have specialists. Same is true with scholars. If you have pancreatic cancer, you don't want to see the world's best dermatologist, right? Likewise with commentaries. Typically, a scholar who writes a good commentary will study that particular book for decades in order to really know it which means that he might be an expert on Romans, but he's probably not an expert on James or on Hebrews. So I wouldn't want a commentary by that particular guy on James or Hebrews. I'd want a commentary by an expert on those particular books. So when it comes to commentaries, there isn't just one set that I'd recommend. If you're looking for like one particular set or something like that, I don't have a good answer for you. Because again, I think there are specialists in, uh, in each particular book but I'd recommend researching what the best commentary on each book is. A few places that might help, bestcommentaries.com, desiringgod.org has a number of, uh, has a, uh, an article called What Commentaries Do You Recommend? And then Tim Challies, his website has the same. And then six, let scripture interpret scripture. When you want to run into a question, the answer is often found simply by looking at other passages. If you want to know what James means by justification by works, you have to interpret that by looking at what Paul writes as well. The last step in the process after observation and application uh, and interpretation is application. What do I do with it? How do I apply it to my life? All right, James 1, Joshua 1, both talk about the purpose uh, being to actually apply Scripture. So three hints. Number one, again, ask good questions. What can you do right now this very day? What does this imply for my future? Is there an example for me to follow? Is there a sin to avoid? Is there a promise to claim? Is there a prayer to repeat? Is there a command to obey? Is there a condition to meet? Is there a verse to memorize? Is there an erroneous view to, to be exposed? What do I learn about God and myself, my neighbor, the world? What does God want me to understand? What does God want me to believe? What does God want me to desire? What does God want me to do? Even if what God wants you to do simply is in that moment to pray and to worship. That's number one. Number two, there's generally only one correct interpretation, but maybe dozens of faithful applications. Kevin Van Hooser says, Intended meaning is a matter of historical and literary knowledge. Discerning significance or application, on the other hand, is a matter of wisdom, for it concerns not the achieving of knowledge, but the appreciation of knowledge and its right use. So you might have different applications at home and at the office in your daily commute, uh, commute to work, et cetera. And then number three, be specific, not ambiguous. For instance, don't just say, I need to watch my mouth. Rather, if you're reading a passage, it encourages you to consider your speech. Then rather than saying, I just need to watch my mouth, I would encourage you to say, I need to repent. 
that I often criticize my spouse or I often criticize my boss or I need to repent that when I hang out with the boys, we tend to tell crude jokes or when I'm with the girls, we tend to gossip, whatever it might be. Be specific. Don't just say, I need to watch my eyes, but where? At the gym, at the office, and around whom? Is there a particular coworker or a neighbor or, or an ex? Sin hides in ambiguity, so you need to be specific. And then fourth, have accountability for the application. Tell your spouse, tell a friend about what the Lord is showing you and how you intend to apply it. So that's really it. Reading the text, observing the text as much as possible, interpreting the text, and then seeking to apply the text. In the end, the goal is to love Scripture so that you will look at it. In fact, there was a Desiring God conference called Look at the Book. That you will look at it, you will learn from it, and then you will live it. Love, look, learn, and live. Below, I've given a, a few resources I'd recommend to get started. The first really isn't about Bible study. It's just a classic. If you, if you hear me say, most people aren't good readers, and you think, yep, that's me, that's a good classic book on, uh, on how to read critically. The next two are kind of how-to books, how to study the Bible. And then the fourth is a good introductory book on uh, hermeneutics, the art, uh, science of interpreting Scripture. Let me pray. And then I'll have uh, Jared come up and we'll do some Q&A. <clears throat> Father, I thank you for your word. And I pray that you would make us better students of it, not so that we would be ivory tower um, academics, but rather so that our lives would be transformed, that we would be a people who are godly, who are holy, who love you and love others. So I pray that you would help us, Lord. I know that there are, uh, in a room this size, there are dozens and dozens of challenges, spiritual and physical and uh, circumstantial. And so I pray that you would help us to have uh, a love for your word that overcomes that and by your Holy Spirit that you would impress upon us not only the need but the desire to really be students of your word, rightly handling the word of truth. We pray these things because you're good and you transform us. And so we ask in Christ's name, amen.